I'll invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 25. We've been working our way through this uh, great book, this book of beginnings, this book of foundations. And this morning we've arrived at verse 19 of 25. I'm going to read beginning at verse 19 and down to the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padam Aran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a happy Mother's Day to all the moms here today. We're glad that you've joined us and hope that you'll have a wonderful day uh, celebrating with your family. Uh, We certainly appreciate you, but we typically don't follow the, the holiday calendar when it comes to our preaching schedule. Just to let you know, uh, maybe you've been confused as to the, the silence about Mother's Day uh, today. I've often said that the women here at Grace Baptist Church are of such a caliber that they don't desire special sermons for them on days like this. They, they simply crave the pure spiritual milk of the Word, if you'll Pardon the expression. So the best way to honor the ladies, it seems to me, is to just continue uh, our exposition of the book of Genesis. But, of course, the Lord has a sense of humor, and every so often in his providence, we land on a passage that perfectly suits the occasion. And this morning we've arrived at the second half of Genesis chapter 25, which is all about conception and pregnancy and birth. Not only does Rebecca become a mother here in this passage, she does so two times over. She becomes the mother of twins. 
So you can file this sermon under the hashtag twinning. This uh, expression, for those of you who are media savvy, is typically used when a likeness or a commonality is discovered. Like when the ladies on the worship team show up and they're wearing the same color or the same pattern, which happens a crazy amount of times. And they hadn't planned on it ahead of time. So it's appropriate in moments like that to to take a selfie with your friend and to post it to your social media accounts with the hashtag twinning. As you likely know, there are two kinds of twins. Uh, monozygotic and dizygotic twins. In other words, there are identical twins and there are fraternal twins. Fraternal twins come from two separately fertilized ova so that they're basically as different as two siblings who are born at different times would be. The hashtag twinning only really plays on that which is identical or very similar but it's actually much more common for twins to be of the other kind, uh, dizygotic. It's it's much more common for twins to be fraternal. So it seems to me that it would be appropriate for me to take a selfie with someone who is dressed nothing like I am and to post it to social media with the hashtag twinning, fraternal twinning. But but most people don't appreciate my... uh, Uh, keenness for technicalities, so that probably won't work. But our passage today is all about twinning, forgive the digression. More specifically, it's about fraternal twinning. What's highlighted in this passage is not what Jacob and Esau have in common, but the important ways in which they differ. So we're going to want to take note of these things. And along the way, to learn some things about their parents, their father Isaac, uh, their mother Rebecca, and most importantly, we'll want to learn some things, some glorious things about our Lord God, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want to show you these things under four categories, four things about these twins. If you're taking notes, these can be your, your main headings. Number one, their conception. Number two, their destinations. Number three, their identifications. And fourth, their negotiations. Their conception, their destinations, their identifications, and their negotiations. First then, let's try to understand something of their conception. As we come to verse 19 and to the words, these are the generations of, well that, you know that this section is really just shaping up to be much like a lot of the other ones that we've encountered throughout Genesis. This is actually how the book of Genesis is, is divided up to speak of the generations of this person and then that person and the other person. Uh, most recently we saw this in verse 12, which outlines the generations of Ishmael. And in a section like this, with that standard pattern, we expect to see a lot of she bore and she begat and all of that sort of thing. Because in Genesis, as you know, we've seen a a population explosion. 
And so we've come to expect a lot of, of childbearing, and we've come to understand childbearing as nearly automatic, as just kind of the nature of things, the way things go by default. We've come to expect that women will be expecting. In our minds, it's basically a formula, and we speak of it this way. We say, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes so-and-so with the baby carriage. In Isaac and Rebecca's, we'd have to modify this a little bit. First comes marriage, then comes love. But in any case, you'd expect that pretty soon after the he took her into his mother's tent part, you'd read something like, and she conceived and she bore. That's just what we expect. That's normal. That's natural. But you don't read that because she didn't for a long, long time. And the narrator invites us to do the math when he gives Isaac's age in verse 20, and then he gives it again in verse 26. So we're supposed to subtract and discover that there were 20 long years of barrenness. 20 long years of waiting and hoping you know, whenever Rebecca was a little bit late, and then disappointment whenever the pregnancy test showed one line or two lines or whichever one means negative. You never know. You always have to double check, triple check. But every time she triple checked, it was negative. And some of you know all too well the pain and the agony, agony of infertility and of multiple miscarriages. In fact, uh, for you, I suspect Mother's Day is not a happy occasion. It's an excruciating one. It's, a, it's just constantly in your face about the thing that, that you've missed out on or that, that you've been denied. It's the day where you really feel that sting most acutely. And we want to know why. Why? Why is one of the most basic biological functions so difficult. And the early chapters of Genesis provide at least a partial answer, which is difficulty in conception has a lot to do with the curse. As a consequence of sin, the Lord God announced to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And we understand that that's just shorthand. That's, that's just a summary statement. The curse there isn't just in the realm of labor pains. It includes all of the difficulty that attends the, the whole process, including the pain of being unable to bring forth children. Now, when you consider what God had said from the very beginning, that the day that you eat of this, you shall die, when you consider what the Bible consistently and uniformly uh, affirms, which is the wages of sin is death, when you think about those things, then the fact that Eve was a mother in the first place is a sign of God's amazing grace. That anyone is a mother is all of grace. We, we ought to never forget that the miracle of birth is indeed a miracle. Life is not promised. Life is 
a precious gift. It's a grace from God. Although, I think we ought to note that in this particular case, life was promised. The promises of God to Abraham concerning a multitude of offspring, nations even, that would come from him, was going to be reckoned through Isaac. God explicitly said this multiple times. And thus, Isaac and Rebekah must have at least one child if God is going to be true to his word. But that doesn't make the trial any less difficult. It doesn't make it easier. This is actually very, very similar to the situation that Abraham and Sarah faced for many, many years. You'll recall that Sarah was barren, and it was decades of waiting and hoping before God finally fulfilled his promises to her and to her husband. You remember what God was doing there, right? Thankfully, this wasn't too long ago, so um, perhaps you, you can remember that God was building their faith in a very powerful way. He was teaching them what it means to believe all of his promises against all odds. And now the Lord is gracious to, to build the faith of this next generation. Isaac and Rebekah are going to need to learn to hope and wait and to trust and to believe in the promises of God against all odds. In the same way, children and young people, you shouldn't expect to just coast off of the faith of your parents. It's a blessing that you have a godly mother and a godly father. And, and that's good. I don't mean to take anything away from that, but, you're, but God has, has taught your parents and has shown your parents and has formed godly character in your parents through a lifetime of of difficulties and, and trials. And if you are following Jesus now, and if the Lord is your God, then you should expect that he will bring trials into your life as well, so that through them you might learn to depend on the Lord. He's been gracious to your parents to do that. And if you're truly his, he will be gracious to build your faith as well and to produce in endurance in you, and to produce hope in you. Do you see how Isaac responds to the prolonged trial? Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Prayer is a faithful response to a faith-building trial. This is exactly, this is not just a Sunday school answer. This is what we must do. And not just a one-time prayer. The, the impression you get here is that Isaac was on his knees throughout these 20 years, begging and pleading with God to open his wife's womb, to fulfill his promises to them and to Abraham. You see, prayer is an exercise in dependence on God. The, the very act of prayer and the content of prayer um, demonstrate that you are in dependence on God and that is exactly what our trials and our difficulties are designed to produce in us. Dependence on Him. And this is really neat because we get to see Isaac making the faith 
his own. He's not just coasting on the faith of his father Abraham. He's, he's making this thing his own, and he's believing for himself the promises of God, even though he's not yet holding them in his hand or rocking them in his arms. And because God is faithful, we read in the same verse that the Lord granted Isaac's prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, isn't it better that way? When, isn't that a good way to, for God to have written their script, the story of their lives? Isn't that better than just kind of an automatic, natural pr- production of kids? I know those 20 years must have been very difficult, but on the other side of it, with strong faith, and with a recognition that this conception was a supernatural act, that this child is a gracious gift, I'm sure that Isaac and Rebekah would testify that God's ways are higher than their own and better than their own. And his plan for their lives is way better than they ever would have scripted it. I trust you'll be able to say the same thing looking back on your own life. Well, that's something of the twins' conception. Let's look secondly at their destinations, the twins' destinations. Well, you can see it was a difficult pregnancy, and some of you know exactly what that's like. First semester, tri- trimester sickness, uh, you know, the heartburn, the back aches, the frequent urination, you know it all too well. And then you get to that stage where you're just constantly being kicked. Rebecca had all that and more. It felt like there was a cage match going on inside of her. And so she did what you would expect her to do in that situation. She went to get an ultrasound. She went to someone who could look inside her womb to tell her what was going on. She turned to the Lord. And this tells you something about Rebecca's faith, doesn't it? When, when things aren't making sense for her, when, when she's wondering why, she instinctively turns to the one who knows everything. She turns to the one who is able to make sense out of everything. And it's also very instructive that Rebecca is, is seeking a spiritual explanation. I, I think that in our scientific age, in our modern age, we, we just naturally default to, to want to know a, a natural explanation for many of our difficulties. And we want, we, we want a natural solution as well. And if you'd like to press in and think more about that sinful tendency that we have, let me just make a pitch for our counseling training tonight. We're very pleased to have Dr. Daniel Berger join us. We've been uh, trying to, to get this brother for a long time, uh, but with COVID and the rest, it's been very difficult. But finally, by God's grace, he is in town and he's uh, going to help us think through issues related to um, psychotropic drugs and, and different um, disorders that we encounter in the counseling process. And if that's something that you have thought about or would like to think about, I want to just 
um, encourage you to join us tonight. Uh, forgive me for the shameless plug, but my point simply is we, we're so prone to seek natural solutions, but Rebecca's instinct is a good one, and that is she's seeking a spiritual explanation, and so she turns to the Lord. And what she gets is much better than a grainy black and white image on an old monitor. She gets an oracle from God. And he tells her, he reveals that two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, I'm sure that would have been a lot for Rebecca to chew on, you know, besides the pickles and the ice cream. Uh, Rebecca's got to grapple with the fact that there's grappling going on inside of her, and that by the will of God. This is all going according to purposes, his purpose. And uh, the fetuses, or feti, I don't know, the, the twins are, are already living out their destiny. It's a destiny that God reveals is a destiny of division and hostility. These two are going to be constantly jockeying for position. But God also reveals that the top spot has already been determined. One will be stronger and one will prevail. Now you'd expect that the stronger one would be the older one. If you ever talk to twins, uh, one of them will be quick to tell you that they are the older one. And then they'll proceed to tell you how much older. They'll give it to you in minutes and seconds. There's a little bit of pride there because there's rivalry there. there even in the best case scenario, when the, when, when the twins are close, but the older always has a bit of an upper hand. And much more in that time and culture. Okay, the older child, the firstborn, was given priority and responsibility and ultimately was given a double share of the inheritance. That kind of blessing was their birthright, just by virtue of the fact that they, they came onto the scene slightly ahead of the other. But it's not going to be that way for these two. For God declares, the older shall serve the younger. Now, we've got some questions about that, don't we? First of all, we wonder, is this a prediction or is this predestination? You, you understand the difference between those two things? A prediction would be God's confident assertion that such and such will be the case because it's based on the fact that God is all-knowing that he, he sees into the future with crystal clarity, uh, that he's able to look down through the corridor of time and see what's going to play out and transpire so that he has perfect knowledge of whatsoever comes to pass and that he can speak confidently that that is what's going to end up happening. Is that what this is? Prediction? Or is this predestination? predestination is God's confident assertion that such and such will be the case, not because he has looked ahead and knows what scenes will be in the future, 
but because he is the sovereign author of the whole script. He's written everything that shall come to pass. Predestination means that the destinies, the divergent destinations of these twins has been determined in a pre sort of a way. So ahead of time by God himself. And man, we have a hard time with that, don't we? In uh, preparation for sermons, I I read uh, a few commentaries, and I think I've told you this in the past, that the very best commentary that I can ever read on a particular passage is the one that's found in another part of the Bible. When it's making a comment about uh, uh, this particular passage, and it just so happens that we have a divinely inspired commentary on this oracle that God gives in verse 23. It's found in Romans chapter 9, the passage that Glenn read for us at the beginning of our service. And that chapter says, in part, let me just refresh your memory. Here's the relevant portion. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything uh, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the, order, the older shall serve the younger. Now, man, there's so much in that one sentence. Way too much for us to even be able to deal with adequately today. But I want you to notice at least a couple of things. First, that the twins' destinies are determined by God. This is a God who has definite purposes. This is a God who elects and a God who calls according to those purposes. Our God is big enough and powerful enough that he is able to um, have ends in mind, purposes that he wants to accomplish, and he has the power and the wherewithal and the authority to accomplish whatever he sets out to do. We speak of this as God's sovereignty. And in the second place, I want you to notice that God's choice is not based on a person's work. This is how we often think that God chooses people, is that we look, he looks down their, the timeline of their lives and he sees uh, the good things that they've done or, or the ways that they on their own are going to respond to him. And on the basis of that, he selects them, he calls them. But this passage makes very clear that God's choice is not based on a person's work. And Jacob and Esau serve as the perfect illustration of this because when he called them, they were in utero, which is to say that they are incapable of doing anything good or evil. God's choice is based sheerly on his own good pleasure. Again, this is what it means to say that God is sovereign, that God is God and he can do whatsoever he wants. Wants. He is a king who sits on the throne, and he that sits in the heavens does whatsoever he pleases, according to the word of God. Not just to control the weather, 
but to say, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. And right away we have all kinds of objections to that, don't we? It's understandable, and many of those objections are dealt with in Romans chapter 9. So I would refer you to that discussion. I'm not trying to put it off. I'm just trying to pay attention to what I can handle here today. But I do think it's safe to to summarize and to say that many of our objections have to do with fairness. We We want to ask, well, how is it fair that God's blessings are going to come to Jacob and not to Esau? But if you, um, Ethan really helped us to get started thinking about this. If you want to talk about what's fair, then that would have to be the option where God leads them alone and allows them to basically destroy themselves. Fair is God leaving us to ourselves and to our sin and sending us all, every single one of us, to hell. We would ruin our own lives. We would ruin each other's lives. And this is certainly the case with uh, Jacob and Esau. As we will see, both of these guys are stinkers. We deserve nothing but divine wrath. But instead of wrath, the Lord God determines to show mercy and the prerogative of a sovereign God to determine how and when and to whom he will show mercy. It's his. It's his own prerogative. He says in that passage and elsewhere, I will have mercy on whom uh, who I say I'll have mercy on. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In this case, God has mercy upon Jacob. He's the chosen one. He's the one through whom the promises to Abraham and Isaac are going to flow. Okay, then now, we, now we're wondering, well, why would God pick the younger over the older? We could ask lots of related questions like, why does God so often choose the weak things in the world, the despised things, the things that are, are not, the things that the world just kind of scoffs at? And once again, the Bible provides us with the answer. And that is that God loves to upset the regular expected order of things. He does this for various reasons, but chief among them is to shame the wise and the strong, to show the folly of the world's way of doing things. But also, he also does this so that with all of the human explanations kind of out of the way, and not just out of the way, but basically stood on their heads, God is sure to get all of the glory. God loves to do this, and he's right to do this. He is worthy of our supreme worship, and so he sets things up in this universe, in salvation, in order that he receives all of the glory. Well, we'll move on from our mini discussion of the huge topic of predestination and election, Obviously, there's so much more that could be said. But I don't want to move on without addressing the so what question that you might be asking. So ask yourself, what difference will this oracle make for Rebecca? 
first of all, it's going to be comforting for her, don't you think? To know that God's got all of this under control. As, as a battle is being played out in her womb, she can rest knowing that God, this is going all according to plan. That God has got this. The sovereign God has actually determined this. There's comfort in knowing, friends, that God has eternal purposes that He is most assuredly going to work out in your life. You get to, you're able to sleep at night if that's true. If God is, on the other hand, uh, uh, basically a powerless, um, man-like person who's just kind of responding to all of the free decisions of, of mankind and demons, then you can't sleep at all at night because nothing's guaranteed. But because God is holy and righteous and powerful and good and sovereign, you can sleep. You can receive all kinds of comfort. And this doctrine is meant for our comfort too, not just Rebecca's. It's significant, don't you think, that Romans 9 comes hot on the heels of Romans 8. Romans 8, of course, is one of the most comforting passages. We go from Romans 8, the the most beautiful, comforting, favorite passage of most people, to Romans 9, as I said last week, the most skipped skipped over passage of all time. And it need not be that way. They're connected. 9 comes hot on the heels of 8, and 8 is comforting us with, the assurance that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. It reminds us that those whom God has called and predestinated, He's ultimately going to glorify. So He's going to bring us all the way home to glory where we will be made to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be comforted by that, brothers and sisters. You're going to make it, not because of your own efforts, but because of him who calls. This is his project, and he's going to complete it. You can be sure of that. Well, let's look thirdly and briefly at their identifications. Verse 24 tells us that when those excruciating nine months were up, Rebecca gave birth to twins. And the narrator tells us to behold this fact, which on one level, I suppose, it's to, it's to have us kind of enter into the excitement of a previously barren woman that is now holding two bouncing baby boys. That's exciting. That, that's just a glorious picture of God's grace, and we're meant to join in on that excitement. But surely this command for us to behold this also prompts us to rejoice in how the word of the Lord never fails. How it comes to pass, right out of the gate, things are exactly as the Lord God said that they're going to be. And they're going to continue to be. And right out of the gate, we see something of the clear distinctions between these two boys. They are, in almost every way, fraternal twins. 
And again, this is in perfect keeping with the Word of God about their distinct character and their distinct destinies. Not only were these, as I say, non-identical twins, these two couldn't be more different. So let's consider for a few minutes their identifications. In particular, we'll want to pay attention to their names and something of what we learn about their natures, which are described for us in verses 25 to 28. The first one, the older one, came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Now, I happen to be able to relate to this a little bit because one of my boys came out all red and hairy. I'm talking about the younger one. He, uh, he came out with just this massive amount of hair on his head. It reminded me of those trolls that I used to put on the end of my pencils when I was a kid. And I, I'm not proud of this, but my first instinct when I saw Johnny was to take him between my hands and just go like this and watch his hair like go up in a swirl. But I digress again, forgive me. This older twin was hairy, not just on his head, but all over his body. And it made him look like a different species. Made him look like an animal. Isaac and and Rebecca took this all in stride. Of course, they're very happy to have boys. And the proof of of the fact that they're taking this in in stride is that they named the boy Esau, which means hairy and has all kinds of connotations with an animal. Shows that they have a good sense of humor about all of this. And later, you can even see it in the text, uh, Esau is going to be given the name Edom, which means red. They're going to call him red, probably because of his complexion, maybe his hair, but also for his penchant for red stuff, like stew. And as as is often the case in those times, Esau's name perfectly matched his nature. It turns out that he really did have an animal nature. For example, that we read that he loved being outdoors, that he ended up being a skillful hunter. He was a man, as we'll see, that's just driven by his instincts and by his appetites. So in those typical discussions that you would have with twins, Esau would be very quick to tell you that he was older, and then Jacob would be very quick to say, yeah, but not by very much. I almost beat you. You see, because when Esau was delivered, the midwife was involved in a bit of a tug-of-war because Jacob was grabbing at his brother's heel, trying to pull him back in so that he could be first. And once again, this is evidence of what God had predetermined and had announced to Rebecca. It was exactly as God described. And there's going to be constant struggle and power play between these two. I mean, it's, when you have boys, things are competitive just to begin with, but these two take it to a whole different level. But right away, we're confronted with something about the nature of this younger twin. He's a scrapper. He's persistent. He's he's steady and calculating. He's determined to get the upper hand at all costs. 
And once again, we see something of Isaac and Rebekah's sense of humor because they call the second twin Jacob, which means something like at his heel. Now, originally, this name had a spiritual meaning, um, we think, that it indicates that God was at his heels, which is basically to say that God's watching his back and he's covering his six, that sort of thing. But thanks to the nature and the actions of Jacob, in time, that his name is going to come and take on more negative connotations, uh, referring uh, later to being conniving or supplanting, the idea that he's grabbing someone's heel in order to overpower him. Jacob is going to be the quieter of the two twins. He prefers to dwell in tents, the narrator says. But don't let that quiet demeanor fool you because he's always thinking. He's very calm and cool and collected. And is so often the case, the parents had favorites. Today, no doubt, there's going to be lots of comments and conversations about uh, who's the favorite, who's mom's favorite kid? Uh, that'll take place at a lot of dinner tables today. And your mom, the mom's going to object and say she doesn't have any favorites and that she loves all of her kids the same. And dad will heartily agree. But everybody knows that that's just a bunch of crock. Okay, that's, just, that's not true. In this case, the narrator wants us to know that Isaac loved Esau, but that Rebekah loved Jacob. This is a bit of foreshadowing because these parentals are going to, going to be an important factor in a chapter or so when it comes out to, to giving out the blessing. And the, their favorites, the way they play this, is all going to come to the fore again. And it's not going to be great. I'll just give you that teaser for now. But for now, I think it's interesting to note the reasons that the narrator gives for the favoritism in verse 28. So Isaac loves Esau primarily out of self-interest. Esau is a hunter, and so he, he kept his dad's freezer stocked with venison and elk burger and all kinds of stuff that he loved to eat. But why did Rebekah love Jacob? Well, from the context, it's hard not to reach the conclusion that she was remembering the promises of God that had, that had been announced to her concerning her younger son. And it's hard not to realize that, that Rebekah is now aligning her love with God's love. She's going to love the one that God is loving. And it seems to me that this is Rebecca believing and embracing the will of God. Of course, she doesn't do this perfectly. As we'll see, this favoritism is going to be bad news. And yet there's a lesson here that the things that we love and cherish ought to align with what God loves and cherishes. Our wills must be conformed to the will of God. How wrong would it be for you to, to love and approve something that God hates and declares to be evil? Let's conclude by looking at the fourth place 
very quickly at their negotiations. And for the most part, the, the upbringing of these two twins is just kind of glossed over. But there is one important incident from their earlier years that the narrator is going to make sure that we know about. And it's about the negotiations that they had. This is at the end of the chapter, verses 29 and following. As far as I can tell, this is the original meal deal. Although uh, that's probably not accurate, because it's actually interesting to look back in the book of Genesis and to see how many people have sinned in their eating and their drinking. Now in this particular case, um, it's Esau that is going to sin when it comes to his eating. And Jacob, again, real quiet, there's not a whole lot of details here, but you know that Jacob has been planning this, and he has been setting this trap for his brothers. He knows the kind of guy that his brother is, that he's impulsive, that he's a bit of a drama king, that, that he'll come back from hunting or being in the field, and he'll, he'll say that he's dying and that he quick needs to have something to eat. And so Jacob is going to capitalize on this. Jacob also must realize that, I mean, this is hard to believe, but people that eat meat all the time uh, might from time to time want something different and be attracted to like some lentil soup. I know, it just, I don't understand it. But it, it's, very, it's very clear that Esau is, is really uh, goo-goo-gaga about this red soup. And, and that's by design. I'm sure Jacob was putting the colors and the flavors in, knowing that it was wafting over to his animal brother, his impulsive brother. And Jacob knows what he wants. He wants the birthright. He wants the inheritance. He wants the lion's share of his father's blessing. And, and he knows that in their time, in their culture, you could actually make a deal for that. You could sign a, a paperwork, make a vow, make an oath to, to hand over uh, the inheritance from the older to the younger. And this is what he's angling for. And he knows exactly how to play. He says, verse 31, sell me your birthright now. And Esau, again, starving, his, his stomach is just screaming at him. So he's saying, why do I care about a birthright? I'm about to die here. And in the original, it, it shows kind of the, uh, the foolishness of Esau. He, can't even, he doesn't even know what he's, he's doing. He, he's basically stumbling and mumbling, saying, give me some of that red stuff, this red stuff that you have. And so they make the deal, and the younger son takes over the birthright, the inheritance. Of course, of course, this was God's determination that the younger would have this, but you can also see at the same time that it's the younger one's devious nature in order to secure it. There's nothing, there's nothing very praiseworthy about either of these guys here. Although, when we're thinking about how do we learn from this, what do we learn from this, uh, we recall that the Bible especially latches on to Esau's foolish behavior. And so we read in the book of Hebrews, written to Christians, 
written to believers. In chapter 12, verse 16, the author there says, See to it that no one is unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And so this, this challenge comes to you. Are you going to be the type of person that is going to throw away everything that you have staked your life in, namely the pursuit of Christ, are you going to throw it away for something red? Whether that be red lips? And it's interesting because in Hebrew there, Hebrews, uh, this idea is very connected with sexual immorality. You have to ask, are you going to throw away your inheritance just for the fleeting pleasures of this earth? Just, just for that one-night stand? Or even that long-term illicit relationship? See to it that no one is unholy like Esau. And the point here is very clear. This is how uh, the passage ends in verse 34. Esau despised his birthright. This is, this is equivalent to despising God who has determined the order of birth and such. He's treating it like it's a, a flippant thing and, and he's willing to cash it in just for a mess of pottage. Brothers and sisters, may we uh, follow hard after the Lord and not cash it all in for some fleeting pleasures. Now, there's all sorts of lessons that we can learn from this cast of characters. But one thing that we see very quickly, and we'll continue to see it as the, as the narration unfolds uh, in subsequent weeks, that this is a very dysfunctional family. So, yeah, there's things to learn, but uh, the biggest lesson is that these people are far from godly examples. And all of this is constantly pointing us to that we need something better. We need someone better. All of this is pointing us to the fact that the seed of Abraham, hang with me please for another minute or two, the seed of Abraham is referring not to a multitude of people, but singularly to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to come in that line. This is the Son of God the Son of Man who is going to fulfill all of God's promises. And he's going to live a perfect life. His, his life is going to be in perfect conformity to the will of God. And all of the things that he loves are going to be things that the Father loves. And the things that he hates are going to be identical to the things that his Father hates. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be our perfect example. And Romans 8, back to that glorious chapter, tells us what the reason for our predestination is. It tells us that we have been uh, chosen and called all for the purpose of conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. So we're called to resemble Jesus, to uh, to bring our lives and our actions and our attitudes in perfect conformity to who Jesus is. Now you talk about twinning. That would be a great person to twin with, to be similar to, to be 
identical with in terms of holiness. This is what the Lord is doing in your life, brothers and sisters. So we uh, give the Lord the glory for that gracious work, and we uh, pray that he would continue that good work in each and every one of us.